Welcome to episode 12 of Design Much, how to avoid confirmation bias with Nate Sanders. This is the first time we've had anybody on the Lexa Croy other than me. So this is this is really good. Yeah, this is a thing in the podcast. Cultured swine, mm-hmm. right? It's okay. I heard I've listened to several episodes, and I did hear the shade being thrown at Lacroix in mm-hmm. the intro. That's okay. Yeah, I still stand by the this perfume. I still stand by that. Well, have you heard Ted Ted Farron's explanation of what it is? Oh no, this is, should be good. Um, he says it's like somebody standing in the corner of a faraway room and they yell the name of a fruit. <laughs> Lime! <laughs> yep. <pretty> awesome. <laughs> Spot on. <laughs> yeah. Confirmation bias. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good lead-in. Yeah. <laughs> um, so can you describe confirmation bias just briefly to our listeners? Yeah. So confirmation bias is any way a practitioner takes what a research participant's views are and then tries to filter it through their own views and or, you know, context. Yeah. So it's, it's any way to be able to misconstrue and really try to filter out what actually was felt and the context it was you know, the reality of the situation uh, through your own views and your own context. Yeah, you're kind of looking for more reassurance as, as opposed to finding um, <clears throat> different views that um, are contradiction or yeah. a contradiction of your views, right? Yeah, and it has, it has a ton of nuance to it. I mean, it, it applies to the entire research process is usually, in, in my experience, is usually fraught with some sort of confirmation bias. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Um, so, why do you think um, why do you think we like to form like we as humans, we as designers? Why do we form biases? Yeah, it's 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 a good question. I think uh, I think there's a little bit of hubris and like pride there, right? That when we have an idea, um, I think we we want that to be the correct idea. Um, I think there's also organizational factors into that, going to that of um, of wanting to please, you know, an important stakeholder. Mm-hmm. So let's say a you know executive has some pet project that they want to push through. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's going to be a strong tendency to be able to look for evidence that supports what they are looking to be able to build or wanting to do, um, what the direction of you know whatever you're designing or building. And so you're, you're going to naturally be inclined to be able to look for those things and filter out the rest. And, and you're going to use that to build a case for you know, why you should do what they said. It's safe, right? Yeah. You feel very comfortable with the fact that because your you know, executive stakeholder who kind of controls your compensation, they control your tenure, they control a lot of things... Um, if you can maybe give them this one little, you know, <laughs> release, like what does that do for you, right? There's a lot of political aspects to it that <clears throat> often get introduced. Definitely. And I think what you said before, it's really interesting. Like you, you just kind of want to be right. Like, and you as a designer, like you're, you're hired to like make the right thing and you want to be the one. I have this idea. 
I'm going to go test this and make sure it's the right idea, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to look for, <laughs> I'm not going to look for like, oh, this is actually wrong. I need mm-hmm. to do something totally different. I'm just going to look for ways to prove my idea was right. Yeah. Right. So I think there's also times where it's, it's very unconscious that you have, whether it's your own experiences. And this is the hard part of ethnography, right? Is that everyone has their own experiences and their own backgrounds and their own context. And when you bring in all of that into an observational format, you have to find a way to be able to try and check and balance that out of the way mm-hmm. because you're going to, you're going to have an unconscious proclivity to be able to like think about and filter through something based on what you're hearing. Like, you know, uh, if, if, uh, you're doing research with, um, you know, urban city kids in their education, uh, somebody that went to private school in, the Middle West is not really going to have the same type of experience, and it will probably, if not checked, it will probably lead to some sort of confirmation bias. Yeah. You kind of have to leave your worldview out of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So I like that. So it's interesting. You, you can be doing it without even knowing that you're doing it. Um, what are some habits that you can see like that maybe designers are doing that can lead to that, that confirmation bias that maybe they don't even know that they're, they have that bias, but what are some habits that they have that might actually form that? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, and I think, I think the best way to maybe even answer your question is to think of times when it's happening. Like when I see it happen a lot, um, sampling and recruiting happens all the time. Mm-hmm. So the people that you select to be able to talk to, to be able to do an interview with, to be able to you know show your designs to, um, it's almost always, from my experience, like filled with some sort of confirmation bias. So if you're only talking to users, you're only recruiting users that are inside your application, you've already fell like fallen victim to confirmation bias because now you're only talking to people that have logged into your app, yeah. only people that use your product only people that use this portion of your product um, while there's an entire distribution of reality out there of what people actually, you know, uh, the representation of what your user base actually looks like. And you should be speaking to all of them. Uh, so there's that recruiting sampling. Um, when you're doing user testing, it's tons of <laughs> tons of it there. <laughs> like if it's, if you're not being deductive in your user testing, um, there is most definitely confirmation bias. Um, you know, a, a user test needs to be very, very deductive. Yeah. You need to be, you need to be giving them tasks and you need to be having the discipline to be able to sit on your hands and watch the performance against those tasks. It's a very generalized, overly simplified you know, explanation yeah. of that, but sure. there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of confirmation that bias that comes into user testing. Um, once you shipped a product, I mean, it, analytics alone, if they're not thought about correctly and if they're not measured correctly, uh, you know, your products, uh, there's going to be confirmation bias. So if you, you know, if you're looking at cumulative metrics and they're just all aggregating to this, you know, kind of up into the right line, mm-hmm. which is more representative of the fact that you are just <laughs> adding more users to your product every day instead of the fact that you have real adoption, real engagement, uh, I mean, that's confirmation bias. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So you're 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 viewing what's actually happening and how your users are actually using your product, um, and you're taking that data set and you're filtering it through your own views, your 
own context and you're looking for confirming things that validate what you think and you believe. Uh, so yeah, I think I think all those types of things are are definitely very common things that designers fall victim to. Definitely. You brought up one thing uh, in a user test is knowing how to deduce your results, like uh, knowing how to find out, like basically go through and analyze the results that you got. I think I think a lot of times, I don't know if this is necessarily confirmation bias. Maybe it is. I don't know. But a lot of times I think that we see something that fails and we want to fix it without actually understanding why it failed. Okay. Right? Is that is that a form of con- of confirmation bias? Like being reactionary to it to try to solve something? Yeah, I, I think if you're introducing your own reasoning and logic into why it needs to be fixed instead of understanding the causality of it, then yeah, mm-hmm. it's totally confirmation bias. Yeah, because I think we I think we always get trapped in that. Like, oh, they did this instead of the thing that I want them to do. And while they didn't do the thing that I want them to do, we feel like that's that's where confirmation bias would come in is if they did that, yeah, that reaffirms what I did. Yeah. But if they're doing the other thing, we we make up reasons or excuses of why it happened and be like, yeah, we should do that then. Yeah. Rather than being like, no, maybe the thing that uh, maybe the thing that I designed was the best thing. It's just I need to redesign what I'm doing, right, to make it better instead of just going with that one thing that they did. Right. right. Um, yeah. If you have you have two different concepts, you know, concept A, concept B, and you end up making a concession, whether it's for the design system or maybe it's a stakeholder, or maybe it's a team decision, or some type of pattern that you saw in the data, and you go with concept B instead of concept A, but you really have you know, maybe a, a leaning and a, um, you have, you actually are fond of concept A. It would be, it would be really hard for me not to see most and especially novice designers looking for reasons to go back to concept A when they're mm-hmm. doing this. Yeah. Even, even if there's not really statistically <clears throat> significant reasons, you know, inside of your, your user test to be able to do that. If you're not, if you don't have a really good justification you're going to be looking for everything you possibly can to be able to go back to concept day. Yeah. So, yeah, I've seen that justified. How can um, how can converse, converse, confirmation bias um, like what sort of um, consequences can it have to a design process? Yeah, I think um, I think ultimately there's there's a couple effects of confirmation bias on what happens during a design process. The first of which is self fulfilling prophecies. Yeah. Uh, so you are going to have a natural tendency to be able to build what you want and you're going to use confirmation bias as a vehicle to be able to build that thing. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be looking for all the reasons and all the ways to be able to get to that thing. The second is, it, I, I would say designs have a life cycle to them, right? Mm-hmm. Like. The, the first time that you design something and what you learn about why you should have designed that. Um, Patrick heard me talk a lot when I was working with him about the fact that that should be almost a theory building process. 
And you have this construct and you've built it and you've learned something and it can be applied to a lot of different areas throughout your entire design process and across the applications or products you build. And if that's riddled with confirmation bias, the return on investment of doing any sort of research and development is now gone Mm -hmm. because that contract is no longer valid. So there's sunk costs of doing research and development. The entire value proposition of doing research and development along with you know, doing any sort of user experience design or product design. It's just not, it's, the value of it is gone mm-hmm. if you're introducing confirmation bias. And I don't, I don't think it's possible to get entirely rid of confirmation bias. I think it's very difficult and very expensive. Um, but there's a ton of low-hanging fruit. Yeah, how do, you, how do you mitigate confirmation bias in your process? I, I keep a list a literal list of things that I know lead to confirmation bias. And there there are a lot of very well-known things that lead to confirmation bias, like in an interview, right? The language that you use um, can lead to confirmation bias. So when I'm, when I'm creating a discussion guide and I'm going to go talk to a user um, about a design or trying to figure out what a design should be, the language that I use in the discussion guide, I'm gonna think about the words that I'm using, why I'm using those words. So localized language. So mm-hmm. if, if something that makes sense to me but may not make sense to the audience I'm speaking to, that will, that will create confirmation bias. Uh, there's a lot of different things that way that just naturally create confirmation bias. So I think if you can create some sort of litmus test or some sort of checks and balances list or wherever it is, some way in your process to be able to actively think about whether or not you're introducing confirmation bias, I think that's an, an amazing first step. Mm-hmm. And you're probably going to still add a little bit. And that's okay. Yeah, I think there's always going to be bias. Definitely. And can you describe like a time when you allowed bias to like seep into one of your projects and how did that affect you? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember early on, was working for a global web hosting company and we were working through an administration dashboard for a node-based cloud management system and the dashboard had been pretty much the sole cause of most of our churn uh, because people would people would buy instances and nodes that come on to this administration dashboard not even be able to understand how to configure them uh, and I should I should note that this was before I got there. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was I was coming in to clean the mess, and uh, there was there was a ton of issues with this dashboard. And I had a lot of ideas. I was I was a designer at the time. I had a lot of ideas of what I wanted that dashboard to be, and there were a lot of visual trends. There were a lot of things I was very fond of. Uh, from a design standpoint, from a visual design donut standpoint, yeah, donut, donut charts. Yes, must have donut charts. Just like a shit ton of donut charts. Yeah. <laughs> any any line graph that like self smooths itself out and like <laughs> animates left to right, I had to have. Yeah, yeah. No, I, so there were there were a lot of visual trends that I I wanted to be able to introduce, and in that process, because I was so focused on those visual trends. Uh, I think I took my focus away when we were actually doing the usability testing from what really mattered. And when I would hear 
certain, uh, like we, we had feedback on certain elements of the design that they, you know, they didn't know a button was clickable. So clearly I, as a designer, I had failed because there was no affordance there yeah. for the button, right? And I, I was so focused on the trend, um, which at the time was flat, right? Everything was going from skeuomorphism to, to flat design. And I was so focused on that trend that as feedback would come in, as we would actually show the designs to people, you know, run them through these tests and feedback would come in, I would be extremely dismissive um, of that feedback uh, because it was contrary to, you know, what, what I wanted mm-hmm. the visual design direction to be. And that was completely rife with confirmation bias as yeah. I look back. Uh, so there's, I mean, there's one that like, yeah. you know, that, that would keep you up at night when you <laughs> think about this process that already sucks and you're trying to build a, yeah. a better version of it. And then you, you introduce your own bias. Yeah. 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 That's like the, I remember those days, man. <laughs> they, they don't know that's a button because they're idiots. They don't know there's a button. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I think another, <clears throat> one thing that took me a while to figure out in, in the design process, um, especially research side of things is when I'm interviewing a participant is, is being consistent about how I ask questions. Um, if you change the wording, if you have found a way to be able to ask it in a particular way, especially um, that can lead to a lot of confirmation bias. And I, as I look back, that was a much slower learning curve than, you know, screwing the pooch with. Yeah, administration <laughs> dashboard. <laughs> so, yeah. So user tests, I know this is a common practice and one that's been preached in the industry is you test five people, you readjust your test, you retest, you readjust your test, you retest, like you fine tune, right? Uh, is that is that a good practice or is that does that lead to confirmation bias as well? That's a good question. I My general philosophy on that is are you seeing repeatable data before an iteration? So if, if I'm hearing your question right, and let me make sure I understand it correctly, that you're saying as they go through the user testing process, is there any inherent confirmation bias from that iterative cycle? Is that what you're mm-hmm. asking? Yeah. I think there can be. I think you can prematurely iterate, and uh, you can do that for the wrong reasons, and you can do that uh, because of confirmation bias. I don't think that process in and of itself, the iterative cycle, is confirmation bias and I don't think it naturally leads to confirmation bias but I think if not left in check some way that absolutely yeah, can. probably can yeah I, I think to your point the probably the biggest risk that you have is prematurely iterating mm-hmm. uh, and having multiple solutions that are perfectly suitable for the user yeah and taking taking the success of each as positive direction uh-huh. that we're headed in the right direction because yeah. each one's working <laughs> in actuality. Like if you had just tested the first a little bit longer, you would have learned more about its shortcomings and mm-hmm. you know failings. Well, and on the same thing, like when when a test fails, I think we have a we react and and uh, and try to fix things too early mm-hmm. in the user testing process by saying like, okay, that that failed, so I'll tweak it. I know how to fix it. I'll tweak it. And then that'll make that design better, mm-hmm. and then we'll move on with the next five testers, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and I think that leads to that same kind of thing, right? Like, um, we fixed it, we moved on, but we didn't actually test 10 people with the same 
control to right. see how all ten work. We just tested three, and so yeah, I think I think that can that opens the door, right? Absolutely, yeah. And if you're not asking the same questions in each of those tests and being deductive, yeah. you have no good data. Yeah, mm-hmm. you have you have no justification or reasoning to be able to even iterate. So no, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example of how I think designers in that process are probably tripped up often. So you said that you made like a list, like a checklist of things that you should avoid. Yeah. You keep you have to review this list constantly so you can make sure you avoid these items. Um, how did you create this list um, and how can the designer actually um, recognize that they are suffering from or they're, you know, they're actually having that confirmation bias? Yeah. So I, I'm trying to pull up the list right now to be able to uh, show us. I'm going to let this download while we chat here. But uh, I, I was made self-aware of what confirmation bias was, I think, probably six years ago. And it was in a book, uh, a research book. Um, and as I was reading through it, just started to dive a lot deeper into what that actually meant and what the implications of were of that were. Um, and so I, I, I tried to read a lot of literature on it. There's a lot of blog posts. Um, you're not usually going to find I think a lot of this type of detailed information on design blogs, mm-hmm. I think you have to go to uh, to more ethnographic type of social science almost yeah. uh, studies, right? People that are actually um, doing real ethnography, they're going to be very concerned about this. As a whole, by the way, I think the entire industry needs to be more concerned mm-hmm. about all the things that an ethnographer would think about, we need to be thinking about. No, that's true. So let me see if this is this is pulled up and then we can go through it. This is a pregnant pause. <laughs> yes, yes, here we go. Pregnant pause. I don't know what that means, but Andy likes Andy likes when we use the term pregnant pause. <laughs> Pregnant? You, Do you know you, the definition of pregnant pause? I I, I, I know, know the definition. The def- of pregnant I know pause. the implication or what it means, but I don't know how to define it. Yeah, and I, I, would, I, I want to hear you define it. Oh, you want to hear the, yeah. this is the actual definition? Wait a minute, Siri, <laughs> define pregnant pause. She doesn't know. Here's what I found on the web for Siri she, define. She's really useless. Okay. <laughs> yeah. A pregnant pause is a pause with another pregnant with another pause in it. Pause with another pause. Mm-hmm. Isn't that just one prolonged pause? Some would say it's a prolonged pause, but it's actually a pregnant <laughs> pause. It's a pause with another pause inside. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it's pregnant. So here's 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 some of the list I have, Andy, just to get us back on track. <laughs> it's my job. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I on, on this list for interview questions specifically, mm-hmm. closed ended questions. Those will lead to confirmation bias. Yes or no question like, yes or no like like uh, binary questions close. E- even <laughs> even even ones that don't end in yes or no, but just end to a dead end for the interview participant. Oh, okay. So for example, if you were to say which of these three graphs do you like the most? Yeah, seven. 
right? You're going to say like this one. Yeah. Great. Now you've learned absolutely nothing about what make, you know, what, what, what attributes and properties of that graph uh, were actually valuable to the user. Like yeah. what, what type of information was it surfacing? What type of, you know, really important things? Yeah, why do, do you need? like it? When do they need that information? Yeah. So there's a lot of really important information that gets just totally butchered in those types of questions. Uh, complex answers posed is binary question. So you have you have a question that requires a really complex answer, right? Um, something like it could be something existential. It could be something that is just has a very long workflow associated with it, and you're wanting and demanding almost like a yes or no or like just a very close-ended answer to it or an abrupt answer. No, it's it's not really fair yeah, to the participant, right? Um, words with localized meaning. Um, so if if you try and use something that is common to the vernacular of our industry, but that your interview participants are not going to be familiar with that, mm-hmm. it'll lead to confirmation bias. Mm. Um, and one that I think like we talked about quite a bit, and, you know, when we worked together, Patrick was idealistic over recall. So you you end up asking them to be able to explain what the ideal situation is instead of having them recall their last situation or experience with it. So the common, I think the common one is like a grocery store, right? You walk mm-hmm. into a grocery store and you say, what do you put in your cart? And they're like, I'm putting Brussels sprouts and I've got asparagus and I've got all the greens and my protein, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But if you ask them, okay, I want you to take me back to the last time you were in the grocery store. What was the very first thing you put on your cart? And they're like, Ho-hos and potato <laughs> chips in, right? Yeah. So idealistic over recall is any time that you're asking the participant to be able to paint a picture of what they think it should be or what they want it to be versus what they actually do, yeah. which is the thing that you should be interested in. Mm-hmm. You should be observing the behavior and then designing something to be able to improve that behavior to get them to their goal. So that goes back to a philosophy of allowing users to design what they would want and to me, I've always felt like that's what that is, is asking them for the idealistic state. Yes. Right? Totally. Which is totally wrong. Yeah. That's totally wrong, right? Um, I, I hear a lot of like thought leader type-ish people talk about that. Like, oh, real great exercise is to have the users design their own, you know, grade book or whatever. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, that's really great. I, I, don't know if there's a, I don't know if there's any value in that. Or I've never experienced any value in that. But that's the thing that, that I know, like, it's totally going to bias everything. Because mm-hmm. you've, you've lost that information now. Yeah, you're you're passing one of the most <clears throat> complex tasks in our industry, and you're abdicating that entire process over to someone that has absolutely no expertise or experience in design. Mm-hmm. And it's it's absolutely going to be riddled with confirmation bias. Yeah. The flip side of that is how do you like how do you use the product now? How do you accomplish the mm-hmm. task? Right. Yeah. Like, show me how to do it. Uh, I always like, like you said, I like that question at the end. I always like that question of, tell me the last time. When was the last time you did this? Walk us through that experience. Mm -hmm. Because they're going to give you a more true answer. They're going to have to think about the details as well, which I think is what people are trying to get them to do when they say, hey, create this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, They want them to think about the details, but the user's not going to think about the details the same way we think about the details, right? Yeah. Yeah. This goes back to the the conversation that we were having a couple weeks ago at lunch, Mm -hmm. right? That... Uh, there, you can do a lot to be able to avoid these types of biases in your interviews, 
uh, I think there is always going to be things you will learn in a contextual inquiry environment, like an on-site contextual inquiry, that you will not ever learn or see or hear inside of an interview. Mm -hmm. And it's because you can't ask oftentimes what you can observe. You can't, you can't ask in an empirical way. You can't ask in a way that won't lead to bias. So sometimes you just have to get outside the building and actually go sit beside somebody in a chair and you know yeah. watch them work for an hour. Well, and little do you guys know, this is what I'm trying to do with LaCroix. I'm oh, trying wow. to understand the, the drinker of LaCroix better, so I need, to, I, need to, I need to be a part of their society. Yeah. Yeah. And observe and stand back. I need to, it's Jane Goodall of LaCroix. Is what yeah. it, is your what I'm first, to do. your first, con, your first confirmation bias is assuming that they're all shitty people. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that, did I? Uh, not in so many words, which is probably my own confirmation right? bias. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, the mad circle of confirmation bias. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Awesome. So, so you mentioned like a lot of the ways that you try to avoid it is you have your checklist and everything. So what if a, des- a designer approaches you and says, they, I think I have a lot of confirmation bias. Like what can I do other than maybe creating a list of items? Is there anything that I can do to, to do this so I can, I can get this out of my design process? I, I think the first thing is to discipline yourself to be self-aware of it. So if you understand yeah. it, if you understand what it is and how it happens and when it emerges, then you could go watch your own recordings of your own user tests and review what you've done um, and and really deduce for yourself where you're adding confirmation bias and make iterations from that. Yeah. So I would say the the best way to be able to do that if you're not going to, you know, have your own checks and balances is just become more self-aware of when it happens and why it happens. I think peer review is excellent for this. I do that all the time. Role-playing is excellent for this, especially with any sort of, of interview or even user test. Just sit down and have somebody, obviously it's not going to be perfect, right? But just have somebody channel the user for a minute and role-play role play the interview. Go through it with them. And you need to be disciplining yourself to look for how am I introducing confirmation bias? How am I, how am I taking or leading the the participant to be able to not actually portray reality for themselves yeah that's great um and also maybe like would you would you say like being prepared is important too like like with that along with that discipline i could just go into like a user a user test or whatever and just like say i can wing this right (laughs) (laughs) um and just like think of the questions on the spot but maybe if you're more prepared um, and you actually have your questions written down or you, you have that, like, these questions are the clean questions that are not going to lead mm-hmm. to that bias, um, I imagine that might help too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think uh, I mentioned earlier discussion guides are excellent for that. Yeah. So if you can think through what you're going to be asking, when you're going to be asking, the wording you're going to be using, and if you can add some rigidity to when you ask those questions, I don't, I don't mean that you can't stop, pause, and dive deeper into what a participant has said. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that if you're not asking the same questions in the same way from interview to interview over the, the course of your design process, you are not going to get repeatable data, which is not the same as forcing yourself to be able to get the data you want. Uh, it, it just means that 
you need some sort of you know matrix view of I'm asking this and this is the data I got. I'm asking this and this is the data I got. And if you can see the co-occurrences that are happening over the entire process of when you've designed something and tried to validate it, that's very, very valuable. So I think the preparation is important. I also think synthesis, like when you get to the end of a, of a process, when you have concluded all of your interviews, if you can bring all that information together, if you're synthesizing it, analyzing it, bringing out the themes, trying to be able to understand what was said and the context it was set in, user journey maps are an excellent example of an activity that is really, really effective for that. Mm -hmm. You're actually going to see the gaps in your in your design process and in your research. You're going to see opportunities where you would you said, well, we didn't. This whole interview is bunk because. As we're looking through this, we just never ask the same question between these two or three interviews. And you're going to notice that a lot more when you're trying to pull out information out of those interviews. So if you're actively trying to synthesize that information and turn it into an artifact, I think you will automatically see ways that you can improve and ways that you've introduced confirmation mm -hmm. bias. Nice. Great. That's good stuff. Yeah. I don't have any other questions. Do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, I just want to know... If I get you a key lime Lacroix, will you drink it and at least try it? I'll try. I'll try anything. Well, that I'll try thing. anything. Uh, did you hear that? Well, yeah. well, okay. Is this on the record? <laughs> Actually, literally, it. it is. Anything related to Lacroix, I'll try it. Okay. I'm not gonna like. You can't get me to try smoking. I'll never do that. That's what about horseback riding? Uh, I've been horseback riding. Yeah. What was it like? Uh, it wasn't fun. Did you wear that coat? Did I wear this coat? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Why do you keep making fun of my coat? Do I need, <laughs> do I need another jacket? I'm just trying to give you a compliment. I'm trying to get rid of my hoodies, all right? I'm trying to be a more of an adult. <laughs> hey, Andy. Patrick. This is a great conversation with Nate Satters, huh? I enjoyed it. That was a good one. That was pretty good. If you want to continue the conversation, go to go to our new improved design org and uh, leave us a comment. If you think this topic would benefit another designer or even your design team, feel free to share it and get them involved in the conversation as well. Uh, along with our new site redesign, with the, you can comment on all that stuff. Yeah. It's going to be sweet, right? A little community now. A community. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see if people participate. <laughs> no, but with our new site redesign... Um, we're also going to change the way the the when we release these because we haven't been releasing them on a regular basis at all. We haven't, and we feel bad about that. Yeah, but we do have full time jobs, mm -hmm. and uh, so it's hard to it's hard to edit a podcast every week to put one out every week. So we've decided to do every other week. Yeah, that's bi weekly. Bi weekly. For those who. <laughs> You don't know it every other week. Wins, every every other week, and we're we're picking Wednesday morning. So yep. You can have a little you can have a little present for your commute. Yeah, every other up, Wednesday morning. Every hump day, you're gonna wake up. Yeah. To a new episode of Design Much. Well, not every and not every hump day. Every, every other, other hump, hump day. day. Sorry yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, Andy, what did you learn from uh, the mighty Nate Sanders? <laughs> well. Um, that was, again, as I said before, a really good conversation. And some th a lot of th things that really stuck out to me is how it's important for you to be aware how you can bring confirmation bias into your design process. So um, he mentioned a lot of ways that you can actually 
um, gain that awareness, but you can listen to recordings of your calls with users. You can look at your notes and look at the questions you've written down and see like, are these questions going to cause bias? Right. Um, I like to, to add to that too. I like that. He said, I think that he said, not maybe not specifically this thing. You're just making it up. <laughs> just, just throwing it out there. But, I, but he brought up the fact that you should, you should look at your, you should, when you listen to your recordings, maybe listen to them with the idea that you're listening to them to see if you were biased or not. Yeah. So you're aware of it. Yeah. Here's the intent. Like I'm going to try to find bias in, yeah. in my process and that's a good way to do it. And that's how you can be more um, aware of what you're doing wrong mm-hmm. um, to bring that bias in. Um, and when you actually gain that awareness, um, I, I really liked how he, he actually created a list that he always references um, that can, mm-hmm. he can go back and see like, okay, avoid these things. <laughs> Don't write questions <laughs> this way. Don't, don't ask users these questions. Um, little reminders. Yeah. So I I think that was really, um, that'd be a handy tip, um, for any designer to have that list. Um, and I really liked his example as well of the time that he had confirmation bias. And I think it's a really good example of how you should divorce yourself from the design. Mm -hmm. Um, his example, he was really um, tied to a visual style that he chose for a design. And that led to being very dismissive about any negative feedback that you got about it. (laughs) So um, definitely divorce yourself from the design and that way you can really just avoid like th- this bias and you can really find the right design that's for your users and not for yourself. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to be, none of the, nobody wants, none of the designers want to be defensive. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's a good way to, to not be defensive with others, including your users. Absolutely. Um, yeah. A couple of things I picked up too, uh, doing the, uh, creating a discussion guide ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And then, and then also along with that, practicing that discussion guide beforehand with the people that you're going to be involved with, um, you know, who, who's going to go out and do the research, who's going to be doing the user testing and then have your goals and all that stuff, uh, in mind and have that practiced so that you can, you can kind of weed out, like, are we asking questions that are really biased or that kind of stuff? Yeah. We keep talking about that practice. Just keeps a lot coming of practice. Up. Come on. Um, another thing too, uh, he talked about was doing peer reviews or role playing that kind of stuff too. Mm-hmm. Like maybe having somebody play a user and kind of testing out your your discussion beforehand to see if you're asking anything weird. Um, but just just preparing and practicing and recognizing, trying to recognize confirmation bias before you actually go out. Uh, the other one I thought was interesting um, was uh, when you're user testing to not adjust the test criteria during the process um, beforehand, like until you've, until you've actually like gone through the entire test. It sounds really simple, but I know that in the past I've been at fault for doing this where you, you'll test the first person. You've got 10 people, five people lined up. You test the first person. Uh, they couldn't, they couldn't find a button or something like that. So then you just jump into envision before the next person comes in the room and you, you just adjust the button and fix it. And then the next person comes in and obviously they don't have a problem with it anymore. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, that's another form of creating bias, right? Confirmation bias is you're just now these other people that you're testing and you're totally biased. You're not looking at the test as a whole. Right. Yeah. So, um, I think that's something that it's easy to slip into and easy to do that kind of stuff. So make sure that you don't adjust your criteria until you're done with your test. And I think that also goes back to creating that discussion guide or like a user testing plan. Like here's all, here's our tests we're going to use. Here's all of our controlled things, right? Here's our tests we're going to use. Here's how many people we're going to talk to six people and then we're going to analyze, right? Yes. Like, I think that's, that's a better approach so that you, you're not, you're not biasing your test. 
Right? Yeah, exactly. And that, that way your results are, are going to be very skewed, right? If you, yeah. if you go the other way and you just change things yeah. up. Well, and also too, just on a, on a benefit, you can compare users too. So if you have different users come in yeah. from different personas and they're using the same thing or whatever, then you can compare how they react to that one issue. Cause maybe some people don't have a problem with it. Some people do. And that'll, that'll give you a little bit more behavioral insight just in the test anyway. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's it. That, was that, <laughs> that was, that was a, another good episode in the wraps. Yeah. In the wraps. In the wraps. <laughs> I think it's in the can. <laughs> no, it's in the wraps. Speaking of speaking of in the can, Andy. Yeah. Um, let's try to be more civil with each other. And when you're in the can in a public stall in a restroom, don't don't play video games, and don't be on Instagram, and don't be Facebooking and stuff in there. You're wasting everybody's time. There's a guy outside that needs to come in and use that place for its intended purpose, and you're just in there blowing ten minutes. Because you're checking Instagram, taking a break from your job. Now, you've mentioned this before to me. Yes. And, and you're saying right now, because uh, I'm going <laughs> to look at the good in people, right? So you're saying you got to be more civil. How do you know these people in the stalls aren't just taking the time to write a really nice note to somebody Hey, else? I don't I don't know. I'm not – like if they're taking time to write like a really nice thank you note to people. Yeah. Um, that shouldn't be done in the in the, in the in the bathroom. I don't know about that, man. I think that should be done where it needs – like – where it has to happen. Like if, if I'm want to write a nice note to my developer, <laughs> my coworker, I'm not going to do it sitting right next to him. Okay. So this, this is great insight, Andy, because the next time you send me a nice thank you note in Slack, <laughs> I know exactly where you're at. Well, I never send you thank you notes, so it's <laughs> not a problem. I know, but if you ever did, <laughs> all I'm saying, all I'm saying is, that's like parking in a handicap stall, right? Yeah. Like somebody's got to go in there and use it for that intended purpose. And people are waiting outside and they can't find a they can't find a toilet because you're in there for 20 minutes. You know, playing World of I don't know what people do in there. Instagram, are you going to say World, World of Warcraft? Warcraft. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're playing I don't know, uh Dungeons <laughs> Dragons. Yeah, if I ever see anybody rolling dice on the floor in the bathroom, that's a clear sign that you're not using the bathroom effectively. It's true. <laughs> All right, should we say goodbye, Andy? Let's end this podcast and put our listeners out of their misery. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>